You're listening to Tove, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, it's John Spirosavet and Sari Lofer. Hey, Sari. Hello. This is the beginning of season four of Tove, of our podcast. Yeah, it's quite a milestone. And yeah. And the final season. Yes, the final season. So this project will come to an end. We have a finite number of episodes left to talk about, although we'll, we'll try to throw in some extra stuff. The next thing actually I think we're doing is to talk to Professor Todd May, the philosopher most associated with The Good Place, which will be really exciting. And this is our chance at the beginning of the season to reintroduce ourselves briefly a bit more. Sari, remind us where you are and what you do. Sure. My name is Sari Laufer. I am, I always like to say I'm a born and bred New Yorker living here in sunny Los Angeles, California. I'm a rabbi at Stephen Wise Temple, parents of two kids and not as avid a television watcher as my husband, but a fairly avid television watcher. Mm. I am John Spiris Yvette sitting in Nashua, New Hampshire. I guess my my home base was Minnesota, St. Paul, Minnesota, where I grew up. I'm the rabbi serving Temple Beth Abraham here in Nashua. And there was some point in the first season where I said we would not this podcast would not be dependent on knowing other pop culture universes, but I think that's gone out the window. So I will I'm not I don't think I'm a huge TV watcher, but it was recently the fiftieth anniversary of the show MASH, which was definitely like a, a backbone of my growing up years in the in junior high and high school. I was going to say this is our last chance to identify ourselves by the good place characters we think we're most like and most strive for, but we probably should give ourselves permission when the whole thing is over to do it once more. But uh, are you prepared to answer that question yet again? Sarah? I am. I've, yeah. I keep thinking about it, you know, and again, so I learned something about myself yesterday. I took like one of these strengths finders for a program we were doing at the synagogue. And I learned that one of my strengths is that I'm a philomath, which means I like to to learn constantly and, and don't like know-it-alls. And so I was wondering, like, maybe I'm a Janet. Like, maybe I'm like Janet. I think I've mm. always thought I was Tahani, but maybe I'm more like Janet. Not that I think I actually know everything, but that the sense of like, the the idea of infinite knowledge is exciting to me. And I do think I'm probably a little bit of a people pleaser and want to help people like get what they need and things like that. So this week I'm going to go with Janet. And how about striving to be more? I mean, I, I always feel like this is set up and especially with rabbis, like I feel like the situation is like set up that I'm supposed to be like, oh, I want to be like cheaty. But there's this part of me that's like, maybe I just want to be... Like Michael, like there's this part of me that's like, yeah, I was watching him in in the episode that we're going to talk about, especially. And I just feel like watching him become like a fuller and fuller human is actually like a really delightful thing to watch and and his delight in it. And I'm sort of like, maybe that's it. Like, maybe it's like finding like this joy in just the like utter experience of being human. So maybe that's my striving. Mm. So I think that I'm going to change my my answers from previously also and decided I take my cue a little bit from I think it was Daniel Curzain in one of our recent podcasts who, who said that he was going to try to answer based on who the characters were at this point in the show. Mm. And, you know, Chidi's become a little less the moral philosophy professor, like instructor stuff. And that's who I've always said before. But I think 
I think Michael, I'm going to say right now, partly because I'm sort of reveling in that kind of almost like awkward teacher mentory thing. Like one of the things that I love is that he's, you know, he's such a big guy and Ted Danson is, you know, such a physical presence. And yet he, you know, he doesn't sort of fully inhabit it. He comes off with his confidence when he can, but sometimes he says <clears throat> something when he's trying to, he's like, yeah, that line, you know, that's, you were devastated when I said that, you know, when, when nobody was devastated. And I feel like I, I absolutely relate to those moments when I try to bring my teacher mentor self and it totally doesn't land. <laughs> <laughs> but yet I keep sort of coming at it. And sometimes, like in the episode we have where you, you kind of rise to the occasion for a moment through the, the goofiness. So, and I think that that sense of like, orchestrating both the and then sometimes behind the scenes some you know i want to think mostly transparently is i'm sort of interested in that aspect of of michael as he's kind of getting a sense of what he what he wants to to see happen in this version of the experiment and uh, boy in terms of wanting to be i think that i am I, maybe i'm curious this time in i i, I really you know and i'll stick with janet you know i think that there are so many things that well you know what i'm but it, whether it's this janet or not i think you know what i will say just for now the cheaty who's sort of here now who is who is striving to kind of see his moral philosophy professorhood in some perspective and as not the same as saving every duck and and horse in the universe, but but having a place and having a value to that and trying to figure out what the value of that is. So I think I'll I'll switch to him over there. So. Oh, which is interesting because I'm like, oh, if we're talking about like right now, like where we're situated, there's this part of me that's like, maybe I'm the Eleanor, right? I, I mm-hmm. and we'll get a chance to talk because I feel like this episode, these episodes are really centered around her in a lot of ways in, in the sense of, you know, I think some of the imposter syndrome pieces of like, what does it mean to inhabit this leadership role? And also, you know, I think that I, and maybe it's like particularly the the space I'm in right now, but I, you know, I think one of those great challenges of leadership is that leadership for me, you know, is entirely about relationship, right? And, And how you build relationship, but also like, I think for Eleanor, like, watching her figure out like, oh God, like when do I have to put aside relationship for this greater good question? Or when do I have to put aside like what's best for myself for the greater good question? And so maybe, maybe I'm not Janet, maybe I'm more of an Eleanor right Mm. now. Mm. So for the people who are, you know, gonna bet on our over-unders, you know, for this season, who do you want to be officially for, for record-keeping purposes? I'm gonna, I'll stick with Janet then. Okay. Stick with Janet. Yeah. So, so before we dive into the the episode, the kind of two parter that opens the season, we we didn't have a season three ending really episode. I didn't think we needed to do that, but I will say a couple of things about the kind of where I think I know I personally am in this project of rewatching the show and and uh, getting through this podcast. And I I would say a, a couple of things. I have been delighted at some of the things that I have learned about how I think about my own learning and development and what I learned from and who I learned from. I think uh, some of the characters and particularly kind of Tahani-ish things have opened my eyes to more possibilities of who could be my, my teachers. Particularly, I feel... I, I want to say vindicated is probably the wrong word, but I, this notion I had that that the show is about teshuva, about change through returning and going back, and as like a fascinating exploration of this central Jewish concept, I feel like in ways I didn't even realize at the beginning, just all this concept of reboots and experiments and and sort of always in some version of the the who you were, the life 
I really have gotten a lot of that and I think have, have learned new layers of that as, as I know I've talked about in different episodes. One thing that I think I've definitely changed my view on is I think I'm coming to understand the difference a little better between the impact of ethical philosophy and particular ethical teachings. Like I feel like ethical philosophy is like these big issues of, you know, is it the point system or the or the good you do in the moment? Is it about motivation and like those kind of behind everything issues versus the the concrete like kindnesses and how you do those kinds of things. And I think probably at the beginning, I sort of blurred those lines in terms of how we discuss it and worried about, oh, is the philosophy really gonna, are we doing enough philosophy? And now I'm like, well, you know, whatever, let's do it. Let's see what we get. And then we'll know, you know, which thing had more had more value. And, and I have to think again, which is what the show kind of has made me do about, about what's the value of the, the actual philosophizing versus the, you know, Brent holding a door open and being nice to people. Yeah. I mean, so I just inherited my senior rabbi's Talmud, weekly Talmud class, which is really fun for me. And, you know, one of the themes that I always teach about, right, when I, when I'm teaching learners about our Talmud is like, is that space between the like theoretical, right? I use the like the debate midrash, right? Where the rabbis sit and learn and debate and the actual real world, right? And I feel like our tradition has this like deep tension between those two things. Like on the one hand, it's meant to be a practical tradition. And on the other hand, I think the the ancient rabbis definitely are like, no, 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 we just want to like talk about it a lot. You know, and, and I also feel like, isn't that like such a deep piece I mean, to me, that's like that is so at the heart of the relationship between Eleanor and Chidi in the sense that like she lives only in the real world, right? Mm. Like it's not. And he is this ivory, like he's at the beginning, like this stereotype of an ivory tower. Like he just, he can name all the philosophers and their philosophy, but like doesn't necessarily actually see how it impacts in the real world. And so your concern about balance, I think is like actually one of the concerns of the show also, right? Is yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Have you had any other reflections on this kind of rewatch through over the last year or doing some of these conversations together? I think here's what I will say. I mean, I think watching it and and rewatching it in conversation with this, with the podcast and with these conversations is definitely sort of a constant for me search of like, well, where do I see this play out both in my life and in my learning? What are these connections You when you, for me, like the sort of when you strip away the caricature pieces of it, which like are there and I think are there purposefully. And I, th- I mean, I've cited this, I think every time, like I always come away actually each episode with like that breakfast club idea of like, you know, each of us is the jock and the right. And so like, yeah. I do actually think that at the end of the show, we are actually supposed to be able to see ourselves in each of the characters. Yeah. So do you look at season four as already one of your favorite seasons? I think yes, in the sense that like with any show that you really like connect with deeply, like you now, and for me, like that tension between Chidi's memory being erased, spoiler alert, actually, no, that's at the end of season three. So it's not a spoiler (laughs) alert. And like us having all of those memories. And I also think that just like, first of all, you know, you know, it's the last season. And so like, there's a, a love for that. And also the sense of like, I've been on this journey with these characters. So like now I'm, I'm invested. And I always wonder, I mean, I could, I, I don't know, cause I don't write television. I could get you a television writer to answer this. Like <laughs> I have to imagine that for writers, 
a final season is really special also, right? Especially, I be- and if I'm not mistaken, good play, they made the choice, right? They said this is going to be the final season rather than like being canceled. Yeah, Michael sure had this idea that this was the arc and this is- Right, and where- and like, I think that's like, as a writer, I'm guessing, I mean, you don't want to be unemployed, but like such a gift to be able to say like, we are going to write this arc, we get to finish it the way we want it. And so- you know, I feel like that there's that very thoughtful, you know, of like what's going to be tied up in a bow and what isn't going to be tied up in a bow. Mm. Yeah. And I think that when you've got a show that's got, you know, such a strong thematic through line that it's got to be hard to do both to do the last one, but just to do the fourth one, because you've you've covered so much ground. And right. I think and, and as will be the case for the podcast, it would be I will be curious to see what what if we have a lot of new themes that we talk about over the right. next a few months or whether whether we're going to mostly kind of uh, circle back to things that we've we've talked about before and i would say for me for this season i definitely think that the second half of the season i like better than the first although already starting to watch my way through the first half there are i i do see it differently as will will come out my my likes and and less likes have adjusted some and i'm, I'm really appreciating what they've been doing in the first part so should we dive into the... Let's dive in. Yeah, give us the summary. All right. We are going to discuss today chapters 40 and 41, which is A Girl from Arizona, parts one and two, written by Andrew Law and Cassia Miller and directed by Drew Goddard. Eleanor continues welcoming the humans into the experiment, beginning with Chidi, and the group tries to figure out why the bad place chose each of the others, including Brent, an entitled male chauvinist, who treats Janet as a personal assistant, and Linda, an old woman from Norway who seems to be uninterested in anything. Simone continues to believe that the good place is just a vivid hallucination created by her dying brain. Derek challenges Jason for Janet's love, and Janet eventually decides to break up with Jason for the duration of the experiment. Linda is revealed to be the often shirtless demon Chris in disguise to punish the bad place for tampering with the experiment. The judge makes Chidi the fourth and final human for their test. Brent's struggles only convince him that he belongs in the best place, and this causes Eleanor to doubt herself and her friends to question her leadership. Eleanor quits her position until a heart-to-heart with Michael, who reminds her that she outsmarted him 800 times and tells her that only a human can understand other humans and save them. Eleanor bounces back and institutes a new plan. They will trick Brent into doing good deeds, and she will tell Chidi that Simone is his soulmate, so he can help her accept that she is in the afterlife. So let's start off with a little fan robbing. What did you love? What tickled you in the episode? I love the Eleanor Brent dynamic because, and we can talk more about this because I actually think like, I am someone who is like very conscious of what and why like pushes my buttons. And like, I love watching Eleanor be like, well, he's obviously here. Like he pushes every one of her buttons and like, it's fantastic. And he's just like, he's just too perfect. I will say having lots of Princeton friends, I am not a Princeton tiger, but like that just is funny to me because like, (laughs) I feel like it is actually like their dream to have everyone running around in orange (laughs) and black. I will say as another, I think as a margarita lover, which I think is like a well-known documented fact, right? Like the scene of Eleanor, like sitting on the couch. And I, at first it looks like she only has the glass, the margarita glass. And you're like, oh, okay. And then like, they like shift just a tiny bit. You see the whole picture, you know? And then as always, like, and I think one day we're going to have to do a deep dive, but like, there will never be a time that the restaurant names don't make me laugh. Like literally never. (laughs) We'll have to do, as we've talked about you and I, a a kind of food and drink episode. It's just, Um, I like, they just, I'm like, that's the job I want. (laughs) I I don't think I could be a TV writer 
because I'm not that funny, but the restaurant names are just amazing. <laughs> the, like they're just so good. <laughs> the, I think there is lasagna a, come out tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> is Derek's thing is is it like a enormous martini? The thing where he has his bring it on moment and he like bites into the glasses. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> Wait, that was making me think about the oh Simone's Green Bay Packer cheese head at, at the party. <laughs> it's like a food related thing, but it's that yeah. was that was great. Oh, I was going to say that you know from what I remember a lot of the people from from michael schur to some of the other writers are, are harvard graduates interesting i, so I too am a harvard there. graduate so maybe there was a little princeton little princeton yeah. thing i definitely you know at, at initially when i watched this i thought that oh, this isn't as funny as some of the other episodes but there's tons of stuff and i really loved at the beginning there when when both michael and sean are giving their pep talks to their team and and sean's you know you suck you you all suck donkey butts and, and he's all choked up while he's doing it which i thought was great and how they sing there, there. oh my god that was the part i was like i forgot that is the greatest part of the whole thing i remember my husband and i like rolling with laughter the first time we watched it when they were like let's sing, sing our theme song and you're like oh my god yes that is the bad place theme song. <laughs> uh, there were some home run lines too i thought about when they were talking about Brent and Eleanor was characterizing him, just in terms of comic timing, she says, you know, born on third base, and, and then there's a couple beats, you know, and you know the line finishes, you know, thinks he had a triple, but she says, think, thinks he invented the game of baseball. I'm like, that is brilliant. This, yeah. They must have run around the room, you know, doing a jig after writing a line like that. And I think the, I think the, uh, what was it? Is it, was it an, what was the thing that the lights, the, it was an elephant made out of light or something? Oh, an elephant made of like light who speaks the world's truths or something. And then Shirley Temple killed JFK. And then like right before it cuts to commercial when it's like Stonehenge was a sex thing. Yeah. (laughs) That was, uh, that was great. Yeah. I like there were some definitely things with the kind of physical comedy like uh, I think it was when Michael is sending off Bad Janet back to to the yeah on the train oh and, yeah uh, I'm doing yeah, my thing but, yeah make sure you do the hand motion yeah. you know, yeah. show me that you're doing it <laughs> and then as he I, I mean I love him so I really do like I just love his character and like his for me his little asides right so like when bad janet leaves and then he and eleanor are walking in and she's he's like it's really important that she do the hand motion right like he like has these little See, that's me that's totally me thinking <laughs> i can like control people's reaction to something that i totally think i nailed like that's... <laughs> yeah, there was something else like that i think it was when oh jason did a thing there at the end when there were hey eleanor we were just talking about how maybe you shouldn't be team leader that wasn't the end and then he does he does this sort of thing with his hand like trying to describe how it was you know like that and, and then he and then he looks at where he's like saved it you know yeah. it was like there's a lot of oh and then his thing with the eyes like yeah the angry eyes it wasn't this it was they were really angry <laughs> that was good. I wondered, you know, are we gonna? Are you gonna be taking us to Brent? I, or is that where we're going? No, but we could. Maybe. No, no, but no. So I'll say my for one thing. I will say the first time I watched the show, Brent was like to me 
almost broke the show. Like I thought, you know, they said no, you know, dictators and whatever mass murderers and boy band managers. But I thought, am I really gonna gonna live with this? And I thought, you know, he when I really like looked at him and watched him act, I thought, okay, this is this will be this is more interesting than I thought. But I definitely wondered whether this was a like a Brett Kavanaugh hearings callback because he talked about why are my people here and he names them off. There's Scotty, Schulte, Porcupine those I remember there was this whole I think about who was at the party. and Mexican <laughs> William which was <laughs> and and I did see there were some articles that were like saying is that is Brent is that who is that who he is and I mean I, I we'd have to look back at like the timing of the the original episode I just like I don't know I I feel I have a cup somewhere I, don't, I can't see it right now that says like fed up with or like you're you know by mediocre white men in unmerited positions of authority, right? Like, I gotta say that any, like, feminist writer in the room, and I think particularly women or non-male writers, I should say, like, I don't think it has to be Brett Kavanaugh. Like, that guy is everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they they do so little topical stuff except kind of celebrity Call outs. Right. They don't do political call outs, but I, I did wonder if they were. Uh, I mean, it was funny in its own right, but I wondered whether that was a little bit there. I thought the line, is this what donating old bras to Goodwill feels like, was a great, <laughs> great way of <laughs> doing a very Eleanor-y what it's like to be a, <laughs> a kind and generous person. Right. <laughs> oh, dear. Any other great lines you had there? I didn't write down any like really specific lines, but I mean, like all the stuff, like the Brent, when they're like, you know, we need you to keep this secret. And he's like, no problem. I buried lots of HR complaint, right? Like, (laughs) yes, (laughs) I mean, and it's funny, right? Because he's set up as the foil to Eleanor, but like, there's also a little bit of like the foil to Jason in the sense that like, Jason did like legit bad thing, right? Like ended Mm up in like. And so I'm sort of like, how doesn't this guy realize that like his moral choices are questionable? Like, and I guess maybe that's supposed to be part of it, right? Do do people of you know that sort of privilege like know mm-hmm. that, that some of the choices are unethical, or is it just sort of like, oh yeah, well? Oh, interesting. Because now, as I, for the first time, I'm thinking too that like if Eleanor were a male and a prince in legacy that probably is you know morally the equivalent character but doesn't come with the gender layer but that's kind of who she was in the in the first season and the flashbacks of her of her first life well i mean i think the difference is she doesn't have entitlement right like she has the opposite yeah 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 which i i definitely agree certainly from my point of view that this does sort of this is worse (laughs) and uh, maybe as a male i feel more responsible for the the Brents of the world. His thing about Martin Luther King was... Oh, uh, yeah. Who I uh, personally <laughs> believe was a great man. <laughs> that's what's, and that's what's wrong with this country. And she's like, what country? What country? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. All right. Well, let's... Daddy, no uh, golfy daddy get angry. I did think it was a really interesting move there that when Eleanor comes back after her pep talk from Michael, that she's changed from her, her kind of suit to this polka dot blouse under a sweater thing, which she describes as her coming back to her B-minus leadership. And then like one minute later in the next scene, she's got the same kind of thing, but it's like this dark blue sweater over this thing with flowers on the, the collar. I mean, look, I think... Yeah. 
And I will say, like, I think as a woman, especially, it's something that I've thought about. Or, like, I tell the story that for the first many years of my rabbinate, I wore a suit every day because more of my colleagues did. And I felt like I was putting on a costume. I was like, and then when I finally realized, like, oh, no, I can wear something that, right? And so I think there, like, I actually think it's important for Eleanor in the sense that, like, she wears the suit because she's like, this is what a leader wears, right? Like, this is the the image that I have to project and to be taken seriously. And then I think that part of the pep talk is Michael saying to her, like, you're not, we don't need you to be someone different. Like, we actually need you, Eleanor, to be the leader. And so I think she comes back and is like, I'm like, the B minus leadership is a great line, but like, <laughs> and she's back, right? Like, she is dressed more like herself. Although kind of in between, because, you Maybe know, herself is this kind yeah. of sweatshirty, whatever. So, but I think that's also like part of the how you see, right? Like that might be an evolution of how she sees herself, mm-hmm. right? Where she's like, maybe I'm not sweatshirty, like gross Eleanor, right? Like now I'm on the next part of my journey, but I don't actually need to be suit Eleanor Shellstrom. Hmm. So, Sari, take us in here a little deeper. So I picked up, there's two themes that I'm really interested in. And then I have a a text suggestion that we'll see. So one of the themes, and I was trying to think if I think there's really necessarily a text, but Dr. Asael Romanelli, who I've gotten to do some learning with, he's a a couples therapist, and he also is an improv expert. And so he does Mm -hmm. a lot of work around that. And I got to work with him in a professional context with some training, and he did this incredible exercise and then continued some of the work about helping the participants in in the program I was in thinking about shadow sides, right? And and the idea that like, if you can sort of like name your shadow side and potentially harness your shadow side, right? Like maybe they turn into your superpower, right? The things that you are afraid to show the world. And so I think, I, I think I'm intrigued by whether it's soulmate or like I guess in Chidi's case, it's a soulmate, but like for Eleanor, the Eleanor Brent, is it, is it seeing your shadow side? Mm. Right. And like, and also I do think that there are pieces of the whole show that are about people figuring out like their shadow sides or how to maybe make positive something that you'd always thought of as, as like one of your negative attributes. Mm-hmm. And are you thinking of this as kind of a, a chuva tool, like to identify that thing as a way of trying to, in a, in a, I'm not a sure. Way. I'm not yeah. sure. I totally think of it as like chuva. Like maybe it's more just about like whole, like a holistic sense, like schlemutz, right? Our, our notion of like being a whole, like how do you bring your whole self mm. into a space, you know? And it's, and it's not just, you know, I think it's in, in today's speak, we would say like, oh, your vulnerability, but it's not, not necessarily vulnerability. You know, I think to some extent, Eleanor's shadow side is like self-confidence, right? She doesn't, she doesn't want to present. She always sort of presents as like, I'm nothing, but yet she actually has this like confidence and maybe even a little arrogance and she needs to actually bring that out. Right. And maybe that's the, that's the sweatshirt suit Mm. dichotomy. And that like the middle of like using your shadow side, but not too much. Mm. is like her in the like, I'm going to wear a a blouse with a sweater over it and I'm going to look professional, but professional Eleanor. Hmm. That's interesting. And I wonder if part of the move with 
Brent is to John. That's not exactly his shadow, I guess. It's not. not he's only shadow side. Oh, he's only shadow side. It was intriguing when he taps into the part who can p- pick up a utensil from the the ground or open the door. That he actually he played that pretty sincerely like it was you thought so i actually thought like you thought no the fork was like not sincere i actually think brent is presented as like the person who actually isn't in touch like who's no it's not that he's only shadow side it's that the things that would be his shadow side are the things that i think most people would consider like what you want to put forward right Uh, so if there is sensitivity or empathy those are his shadow sides. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Actually, what I was comparing it to was in the the very same thing in season one with the motivation episode where Eleanor is holding the door open to the yogurt place. She very quickly, does, does, I think, devolves into this, I can't believe I'm opening the door thing. And maybe he would have gotten there. We only saw like the first, you know, two door openings, but but he looked pretty good doing it. Doing it. But no, I totally buy, buy where you are. I'm trying well, to- I also just want to name that, I think there are gender dynamics of that, right? Where for a woman, it feels subservient, right? If I'm holding the door, it's like, yep, like just open a door for a dude again. Like, and I think for Brent, it's the like chivalry, right? Like I'm the man and Uh, I, yes. so. You know, in Jason's case, in this episode, we get we get these cases where he both well, but he he really he pulls out some vocabulary. Let's see, what did I write down here? He's got I want to call a truce. He's talking about how he realizes he's being chaotic and unpredictable. And and he I mean, he does take a little too literally the idea of giving Janet some space by taking a couple steps backwards. But but he does. I think he thinks that if he can if he can become that dude who expresses some higher level thinking that this will solve his problem with Janet. And then it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't yet, which is, which is sad. Obviously these things are not instant, you know, yeah. none of these things are quick, quick fixes. So now are you relating some of this shadow? So, you know, in, in Judaism, we talk either about Purim or Yom Kippur kind of around, mm-hmm. is that, oh, is which that is, where you mm-hmm. were thinking about? No, though I'm intrigued by that. I'm intrigued by that. And it'll, go nicely into my last thing. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm intrigued by that. I could play with the idea of like, so on Yom Kippur, we like strip everything away. It's a strange thing, right? Purim, you put on your masks, but you're also supposed to be upside down, right? So like, is Purim the holiday where you're allowed to like, let your shadow side out? And yet, but also on Yom Kippur, like if you're totally stripped away, then like, how can you hide your shadow side? That's a really interesting thought mm-hmm. perhaps next year's high holiday <laughs> <laughs> so yeah Never where else was really. the so yeah so what else was it doing in the episode for you the shadow concept i mean no i it just i was just something i was thinking about in terms of what does it mean to have your like doppelganger or your foil in the world and how does that either trigger you or inspire you you know uh, I think. Do, yeah yeah do you have those people who either push every button and when you can step back like Jason <laughs> and like, <laughs> say like, oh, maybe they're pushing a button because I'm afraid that that's how I am or mm-hmm. like I do that. And also sometimes like the things that we're really jealous of in other people, where we're like, oh, I wish I could do that. Yeah. And that's, I think that is an important Chuva move because I know that I have had this problem, you know, of thinking about Maimonides and how it's this what you bring to consciousness. It's on you to sort of figure out what happened to you in the situation. And maybe this is part of how you do that. And then to sort of will yourself into a different thing. And, and other people can play a supportive role. They can teach you. They can supply you 
teachings, or maybe you can, you know, in conversation or by working on a project as these folks do together, you can kind of discover new layers of yourself. But this uncomfortable part of saying, I can't really make this move as my whole self as a chooser into something different if I don't really know what that is, is interesting. And I actually, we were thinking about the, the current Good Place experiment as the test, you know, is on the new people. It's on John and Brent right. and Simone, but it's also on our original folks too. And that how Eleanor, you know, responds in the aggregate to this situation, like is her are her points going to be adjusted by, does she get to continue to grow through this encounter? Clearly she will, whether, whether it will count in the, in accountant maths calculations, right. I guess we'll, we'll see. Cool. So good. So go on. Okay. So the second thing or like theme, which I think definitely has a sort of chuva resonance, right? It's just this, I don't remember who said it. I probably should have written that down, but the notion of confronting what kind of people we are, right? And and on the one hand, I thought to myself like, yeah, our tradition says like, we actually have to do that at least once a year, mm. right? If not more. And that notion, I think even pre the work of Chufa, but our notion of cheshbon nefesh, right? Where we like take this accounting of ourselves of who do I want to be? Where did I hit my marks and where didn't I, you know, where did I fall short? I'm a big, I think people know this. And I mean, I don't know, the, or I, I'm a big, I love planners and goal setters, like paper planners and goal setters, right? And I'm, I just bought my stack for 2023, right? And so there is hmm. you know, the the secular calendar. It's it's kind of that time of year also of like, oh, did I make progress? Did I do any of the work towards that goal? Do you use them? Do you actually, do, do you look, do you write these things? Record, we're in Zoom here. There is an actual. Yeah. This is a new goal setting journal. I could get my one from this year, but yeah, I usually do. I try to do, you know. Some professional goals, some personal goals, some family goals. Yeah, I do write them down and then try to break them down into smaller steps, mm. which, you know, I think is interesting, right? Because I feel like that's sort of where Eleanor, where they get to is like, we can't convince them of everything. Like, so now how do we get them to just like little by little, point by point, make these small changes? Yeah. And I think she starts also by saying like, okay, like we have a year, but let's this week, let's just let them they need to be comfortable here so right. that we can do so we can do anything. I'm always torn as a rabbi, right? In the sense that like, I feel like I preach change all the time, mm. right? I was talking to someone about like super work supervision, right? And supervising something, someone and, and a challenge, you know, and it's like, they're not going to become a different person. Like they're not, we are not fundamentally going to become like radically different people. But if we have enough incremental behavior or viewpoint change, like, do we ultimately change? Which again, is I think one of the questions, like the big questions of this show is like, do people change? Do their behaviors change? Is that the same? Is that different? Mm-hmm. Is one better than the other? It's interesting that the first move that the they make in, in Mindy's place there is to say, we can't, we can't know how these people need to change until we can sort of figure out who they are, right. which may be a way of saying, I don't know if they mean like what, well, actually what they discovered, I don't think they start off with, we can't figure out what they need until we discover what's wrong with them. They actually don't start there, but they very quickly get there. Like, like Simone's a mess. She doesn't think this is even happening. So that's a problem. And Brent, we thought he was whatever, but now it turns out he's a, he's a jerk. And right. he's even uh, worse. Yeah, he's even worse. And, uh, but I think it's actually to their credit that they don't really start with, you know, what's evil about them. Right. And I mean, I guess they originally... 
I suppose, lie to everybody and say you're here because you're good. So, so do they? Actually- I mean, it's interesting. They just say you're in the good place. Like, I, I don't know that they actually oh. tell anyone like, why you're here. Well, no, there's a thing. There's the video where they, I mean, they do screen this video. Simone, like, interrupts. Oh, right, right. <laughs> so Her head. It was interesting because apparently you get, like, a point and some fraction for eating a sandwich. But if you, and I wrote these down, too, there was there weren't that many point value things compared to uh, episode one where they really dug into it. There was nothing about being a Yankees fan. <laughs> oh, apparently insulting someone's hairstyle is less bad than cheating at... What did it say? Oh, I wrote this wrong. Cheat at gold. Oh, well, yeah. Cheating at something. Cheat Golf, not gold. Golf, golf. that makes sense. <laughs> Cheating at golf makes much more sense. Maybe they threw that in there for Brent. I don't know. Probably, right? It's a little subliminal thing. But yeah. no, I think it's actually, that's it. you know, the framing of certainly nobody's going to be confronted with, with how bad they are. And that's not going to be a motivating thing. Yeah. But I was also thinking about in terms of tax, right? There's Ron Wolfson wrote a book based on it, but the the idea that there's these questions that you get asked, you know, in our tradition that says when you reach the world to come, right? And there's like what, seven questions that are like derived on like, how did you live your life? And so I was like sort of thinking about that in the notion of like confronting what kind of person you were like, yeah, like what kind of life did you lead? And, and is that what the gang is like trying to get these folks to to think about and also how is the gang thinking about it for themselves and that relates a little to something you said before about the relation between kind of the the big picture ideas and the the pragmatics of life because you know like who are you or what kind of life did you lead is is a different question than you know kind of what concretely did you did you do right. was it was it kind was it nice Right. That question of like, were you a good person or a bad person? It's like, but if you say, right, what is it? Were you honest in your business dealings? Did you set aside time for Torah study? I always remember Tsipita Lishua. Like, did you did you hope or expect redemption? Right. Like, were you a person of faith? Like, it, it does. It takes it from this like grand, like, I, I don't know, to like, okay, yes, I did that. Maybe I didn't do that. Right. Like, very clear standards. And like, what would it look like if everyone was like, given that at the beginning of their life or at the beginning of their consciousness of like, okay, here are the things you're going to be graded on, right? Like a syllabus <laughs> <Yes>. for life, <laughs> you know, 25% of your grade is going to be this. And, you know, <laughs> that would be neat to make a version, a kindergarten version for our, for our synagogue schools and stuff like that too. <laughs> Actually, I think kindergartners are sometimes better at it, right? Like they have very clear understandings of like, this is what we do and this is what we don't do. Yeah. You know, we haven't we haven't really talked about Linda, who is shirtless Chris in disguise, Stephen and Chris. The I think what's so perplexing about her when you accepted that she was real was was her not being able to give you anything at all. You know, right. I always find that this is you know that's to me that's even more challenging <laughs> in terms of meeting a person or encountering someone, huh. even right. even, even like- pastorally. There is this story. I think is it is it is it Basheva Singer who has the story about Bancha the. The silence who, you know, kind of arrives yes, at the judge right. who has nothing, although it ends with a thud with sort of like basically a guy who just wants a peppermint and <laughs> and the divine court is trying to figure out what to make of him. I think it's yeah. been ages since I since I looked at that. Right. Though interestingly, like I feel like she's not presented even before we find out, right? Like she's not presented as like, I just have simple needs. Right. Which is one thing, right? Like I think there's there's like a beauty to that of like, I just I don't need a lot. Versus like, I have zero curiosity. Yeah. And that, which is a different kind of, I don't know if you can say that that's bad. Some people are wired for, for more active curiosity and right. So, so I think it was legitimately 
interesting thing to try to figure out. And ironically, she's the one they have the hardest time trying to figure out what yeah. to do to make comfortable because they, they just have, they can't even push against some resistance. They don't get anything. It's kind of interesting. Okay, are we ready for my last? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Here was my revelation. And we were talking about Purim and Yom Kippur. We're recording this like 10 days before Hanukkah starts. But so it's, it's, it is, it's a good counterpart, right? The two times we say Al-Hanisim, the prayer that we add for Hanukkah and Purim. So there's my connection. For miracles, right? miracles that, prayer, yeah. Sure, miracle, yeah. That Eleanor plays a Queen Esther role here. Ooh, yeah. Like, I think that that's who she is in this moment. In that pep talk, right, when she's sitting on the couch with the margarita, which I also love. Again, <laughs> just want to name that once more. And, you know, Michael is giving her this pep talk. I All I could think about was when Mordecai says to Esther, you know, perhaps it was for this moment that you became the queen. Hmm. I just kept thinking about that of like, did Eleanor want this leadership? But like, she's got it. And like Michael sort of saying to her, like, Everything that you've done, like maybe led you to this moment. So do you, can you zoom that out just for the listeners, provide a little more context there? Sure. So in, in the story of Purim, you know, when there there's a pageant, we'll, we'll clean it up nicely. There's a pageant <laughs> to pick the new this queen. This is an adult podcast. We can okay, say whatever well, we want to. Whatever. There's a pageant or contest of some sort to pick the new queen. And, and Mordechai, who is the father figure to Esther, says to her, you should enter. And I think there's, I mean, I think he is seeing several steps ahead, right? Of saying like, I think it's not a bad idea to have someone from our camp in the palace, right? Like he's not just doing it of like, oh, I think it would be fun to be the queen, you know? And she is definitely hesitant of like, I'm Jew, right? Like all of this stuff. Like I'm, I don't even think it's imposter syndrome. I think she's really like, I don't think I'm the right person for this role. But she does it, and she, of course, becomes the queen. And over the course of the story, when Mordecai has overheard this plot to destroy the Jewish people, now he has his inside woman. And he goes to her and he says, you need to you need to take care of this. You need to go to the king. And Esther's hesitance is basically like, no one goes to the king, right? <laughs> like, that's That's so dangerous. I could lose everything. I could lose my life. And he says to her, and it really is like a beautiful moment. He says, perhaps it was for this moment that you became the queen. And and I was just thinking about that, where I think Eleanor is really questioning, like, why am I doing this? I think she's questioning it personally in the same way that I think Esther is sort of like, I could lose everything. You know, I think Eleanor is like, why am I doing this? Like the man I love, like, I'm literally going to have to watch again, losing the man that I love. And you know, my friends are mad at me and no one has faith in me and I can't do this. And I think that there's this, I think there's that moment where Michael's like, but you did this, 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 and this, like, perhaps it was for that, for this, that, that you became the queen. I love that moment in the story of, of Purim in the book of Esther in the Megillah. And I love it as a as a thing in the good place and and we've kind of visited there before chapter 24 was where the where they're passing through the bad place headquarters and they have to dress up which is we've been talking about and actually kind of similar thing happens and I, I i think i remarked at the time that there's michael mordecai there's esther eleanor i don't know and yeah. at the end of that episode when they get to this portal and they only have i think enough tokens to go through and Michael 
I think gives his to either gives his to Eleanor or whatever. Like he's not going with them, but he sort of looks at her and he's like, "This is this is what's going to happen. You're going to be the leader on the other side of this." And you know, I've thought about the Purim story as something like this happened once. That's sort of a one way street that goes from before she has that moment of charge to afterwards. But this suggests that like for Eleanor, she has been in this situation before too, where she's been the leader and the one who said, you know, take the leap of faith or let's make a deal with Michael or whatever. Like this is this is not the first time that they've kind of been in this situation together. But this is her sort of rock bottom about it. I mean, she's never she's never said what she said here that, that I can't do it. Like I'm not the and I also think, and maybe because we know it's the last season, right? Like it also feels really high stakes. It feels like in the other times, there's always been the like, we can reboot, we can do this, we can do that. And this feels like this is it. Like there's no other way out. That's interesting. You you think that this is the key, the, the last of the turning point moments you think for her? I mean, or? I just think... Again, and maybe it's hindsight, though it isn't really hindsight, because even when you watched it the original time, you knew this was the last season, right? So like in other seasons, you sort of know, well, this isn't the last season. So there's got to be an exit strategy to keep it going. Hmm. Whereas this sort of feels like we don't, I mean, now, like, obviously now we know how it's going to end. But when you were watching it for the first time, you don't know how it's going to end. So like, maybe that maybe it ends that the whole thing is a failure, right? Like that they do go down in flames, literally. Hmm. <laughs> What has interested me about the conversation in the Book of Esther is that it's done by messenger. The Mordechai and Esther are not in the same place, <laughs> but the message does get through. And I think parallel to what to what happens here, Esther gathers her people, such as they are, which aren't really her people. She's they're this other part of the harem, who it's whoever she has around, and she'll know there's these other people that he'll gather around, but they won't. But she won't be with them. Here, she does get to get together with her people, but they're already her people. Yeah, and she I thought about this. that too. The no, life. I think it's great. I mean, it's yeah. in a way, if you were, if we could send the writers of this episode back to the Bible, they could, they could improve on it. And but the other thing is that in in the in the Megillah, where what Michael says is, you know, this sense of like, who knows. Like, maybe that's why you're here. And it's kind of about her landing in the position. Michael is in the position here that he hasn't quite been in before where he can say, you have a track record. You know, she says, I'm the person, you know, I'm a normal girl from Arizona who, what is it, might have come out of an HMM store wearing more underwear than when she went went in. And, And she describes herself, as you say, you know, back to the shadow thing, such a bad job being in charge of my own life. And Michael says, no, no, that's not who you are. You're the one who outsmarted me, you know, 800 times. And when I say to you, you know, like, you can fail a bit and then like, you know, fail fast and keep going. It's because they've done that already, which Mordecai couldn't say to Esther. She hadn't right. done anything yet. Right. And I love this variation that you're And I also just, I love yeah. the like mentorship there, right? Like, Think about the best mentors who are just able to see you radically different from the way that you see yourself. And they're able to do it not because they have some starry-eyed vision, but because they're like, but I've seen you do X, Y, Z, right? And like, we can't always see that for ourselves. So like, what a gift he gives her of saying like, yeah, you are the girl from Arizona who walked out of H&M wearing more under, right? Like, yeah. And, you know, part of me is like, And again, maybe this is the shadow side piece. Like the thing that always amazes me about Eleanor. And by the way, my husband is good at it probably because he grew, I don't know, because he wanted to write for, like, I can't see that many steps ahead. 
And she always can somehow. And like, part of me is like, well, I wonder if that's because like, she did have this sort of like, not quite hard scrabble upbringing, but didn't have all the privilege. And so like sort of had to think a couple of steps ahead for herself. And so I think he's also saying like, yes, you're the girl who came out with the extra underwear and like, that's going to give you strength, but you're also (laughs) this person that you've become. That is the best interpretation of... (laughs) Shop, perhaps shoplifting underwear that I think I've ever, <laughs> I've ever, I've ever heard. <laughs> in the first time through this, in chapter twenty-four, Ilana Schechter and Daniela Rizman were talking about this being a situation where, uh, where this woman has to rescue the world from problems imposed by these men, particularly older men, particularly Sean and Michael, and that she's the one being expected to clean up their their messes. And just uh, since you, you know, we're talking previously, we were talking about gender things. Do you, does that at all resonate to you? Or do you see, no, Michael, like, it doesn't matter that Michael is the male mentor, tall male mentor in this situation. It doesn't bother me. Maybe it should, but like, they have just such a real, like, and also look, I mean, there's all sorts of dynamics, right? Is he the dad that she never, right? Like all of that stuff, but like, he does a really good job mentoring her. Hmm. And it's actually, you know, in a way... He does a really honest job mentoring her, is what I should say, right? Like, I don't think he ever sugarcoats her. Yeah, like, it's interesting, because she's sort of, you know, she figures out that he, that in this simply clumsy, you know, pretending to have a nervous breakdown thing that puts her into the situation, that seems sort of clunky. And yet he can, but he can get to this moment with her and uh, critique her comment about being a hot, blonde, wily coyote. (laughs) What did he say? That that was a great thing you said not the thing where you sexualized the cartoon but it's also in the other part of i guess the equation is that really eleanor is the only person who michael can mentor i mean he's been important for the other character but there's no other there's no other person in this scenario except maybe janet who who michael like michael couldn't do this you know with it's jason it's just jason 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 Jason. (laughs) he's he's like "You're, you're beyond my i can't even I have nothing to say, and <laughs> I can't offer you anything at this point anymore. And so, in that sense, there's kind of an equalizing. There's no, there's no Michael mentor without Eleanor. He doesn't have that function or whatever. He doesn't have that thing that he could do. I think a lot of life moments really come down to that Mordechai Esther moment, Esther Mordechai moment. Maybe I want to call it. That's one of my favorite things in the whole Bible, and I think in the whole Jewish year. Yeah. And you know, as you say, we are coming up as we're recording on Hanukkah. And this is probably the reason that I actually like the Purim story generally more than the Hanukkah story, which is so which many pre- Yeah, <laughs> which presents us so much more in the, you know, not only the leading with violence, but I think, you know, you could make a case for sort of the the Maccabees as a collective set of rising to the occasion, but it's not nearly brought to the surface the way it is in the in the Megillah. <laughs> And 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 I and I've wondered. I'm now wondering whether that's one of the reasons that the rabbis of the Talmudic era were just much more interested in the Esther story than they were in the Hanukkah story. Also, that it's canonized, right? Like it's actually in our sacred text, and the Hanukkah story is not. Which is not to say that I don't want people to enjoy their Hanukkah coming up, because I absolutely do, and we'll <laughs> make good things out of that. Also, eat some. Lot. I had my first latke of the season yesterday. I'm psyched. I'm ready. <laughs> Anything else you want to layer? On? The last thing I don't think we've spent a lot of time, right? But is is this how do you make a choice that is right? You know, it's the trolley problem mm. in 
like personalized, right? How do I make a choice that I know is going to hurt me or hurt someone, but it's for the greater good? Janet do it. We see Eleanor have to do it. Yeah, you know, you're right. And that's what that that sort of adds another chuva layer for me. And let me see if I can try to express this as I'm thinking it, which is that sometimes it's not just about you and your your personal change. You can you can sort of see the theme in, you know, across a set of people who are all trying to figure out how to respond to a kind of moment. It's not the same moment exactly, although it's happening in the same moment in this in this episode. But but you can figure out how to how to learn from the good choice that somebody else made, or at least the important choice someone else made. And they're talking about how Chidi made this choice to essentially sacrifice himself. And, and as Eleanor had said before, like, yeah, except you won't, you won't know that you made that choice and you're not, you won't live with the impact of that. And I will, but yet she comes to understand, you know, maybe this is, maybe what I did is learn from this choice. And Michael's before when he stayed in the bad place to wave them off or when he went into accounting while they tried to figure it out of the void. Like there was a lot of that. Each of them kind of take their turn putting themselves on the line. It's not it's not one of them all the time, but they they kind of collectively go from people who who kind of don't put themselves on the line to people who do and and knowing when the moment is to do that. And when it's the moment to help somebody else to do that, because I think that's the other thing, you know, like they don't say, okay, well, okay, Elnor took her chance at sort of being our leader. Let's give Tahani a, a chance. Like Jason, as as often as the case gets it, it's like, you know, what does he say? I am, you know, making whatever he says, you know, about about how Eleanor was leading. He says, you know, that's my thing and you wouldn't put me in charge. And so they figure out the, the right person who has to take one for the team. They sort of get their way to that. And maybe that's it. I was thinking about like, what is the idea of being somewhere in the middle? Because you can't, I mean, so, with, you know, again, like a classic high holiday tax where God creates the world, like if it's only Dean, if it's only justice. So like, maybe if you're just selfish, like Eleanor is sort of at the beginning, right? We're supposed to understand her as, you know, selfish, the world can't uphold. But if you're only selfless, right? If it's only Rachamim, if it's only compassion, like if you're constantly sacrificing yourself for you know, you become a martyr and maybe the world can't hold. And so what's that middle space? Because, you know, I love the, the middle place. Yes, um, yes. Medium place that like, you know, what is between I'm going to think only of myself and I'm never going to think about myself. I think that would we would say like you can't exist that way either. And, and right. So the idea that they sort of all take turns taking one for the team, I think, helps bring you into that center. Mm. Right. We're not constantly saying like, okay, Eleanor, like your turn again. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. And and to start thinking about this, which, which the season will get to, which is that, is it about whether everybody's points went up or whether collectively their, their kind of synergistic points went right. up, which right. I think is a really important thing that's starting to, to come out. You know, I really, I think these season beginning as well as season ending episodes are really hard, as we were talking about, to create and write because there's so much of the business of the show and plot advancement to do. And, you know, I I came in probably having a flatter idea of what this season opener was and, and that, oh, they just kind of ran their way around a few of the themes, you know, briefly, you know, Brett's Brent's motivation, you know, whatever, they name check sort of some of the things. But but what this has really helped me do, and you've helped me do, Sarah, is really see the the many more layerednesses around how they're how they're looping back and starting to say how they're gonna 
going to continue to to revisit the themes that really were there. And that was the whole point of the new experiment is to test out whether right. the, the concepts they've been talking about actually work if you do them again. What new right. things do you learn about them? So I like I like how this season has started of the show and, I, and how our new season has started. Yes. So I need a little that. more Tahani and Jonathan because they just crack me up, but... Yeah, there wasn't so much of that. <laughs> right. I mean, that's what's interesting, right? I feel like other opening seasons have had much more of like, okay, we're going to check in on each of the characters, right? Like, and this was really largely focused on on Eleanor and therefore Brent because of that dynamic, right? But like not so much the other people and they just crack me up. Jonathan just cracks me up. Like, <laughs> you know, probably because I live in LA and I'm kind of like, oh, yeah. I think you, I think we're going to get back to them. Absolutely. Right. All right. Great to talk to you, Sari. We yeah, this was fun. I'm we'll go. do this again very soon. Indeed. Great to talk right. to you. Have a good one. Take care. You too. And that's our episode of Tove. Thank you for starting another season with us. Make sure to subscribe on your app so you don't miss our next episode, a conversation with philosopher Todd May, who is a major consultant for Michael Schur and The Good Place. Give us a good rating, share about the podcast on your social media, or just tell someone who loves The Good Place to check us out. We've got show notes and other resources at tovegoodplace.com. Keep connected on social media at tovegoodplace and be in touch with questions or suggestions that way or by emailing to tove at tovegoodplace.com. Sari Laufer is on Twitter at Rabbi Laufer, and I'm John Spiracevet at RabbiJS3 or RabbiJohn.net. We write and connect in those places as well as others you can find through the hosts page at tovegoodplace.com. And you're welcome to check out our synagogues online or on-site happenings at wisela.org and tbanashua.org. Thank you so much for listening. And to riff on what Mark Evan Jackson, who plays Sean, says at the end of every official Good Place podcast, now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.